Yeah, the peer counselors are amazing. Um, peer counselors. So mostly everybody who ha- who works at ARC has been through ARC themselves. So the the peer counselors, whether they, they graduated a year ago, two, three years ago, we have a lot of peer counselors right now who are in that 18, 19, 20 range. And there's someone who is two years sober working ARC 18 years old. Um, so yeah, I think the peer counselors are super crucial and they do a lot of good work at ARC for sure. Is there anyone out there? From Darkness to Life explores the stories of real people who've navigated their way out of life's toughest situations, emerging with greater strength and resilience. If these stories remind you of your own journey and you or someone you know need help, our collective journey is here for you. Whenever you're ready to take that next step, reach out to us at ourcollectivejourney.ca. Hey, welcome back to the Plugged In Media Network studio. This is Ryan, and this is From Darkness to Life, your weekly dose of inspiration and resilience. If you want to stay connected with us beyond the airwaves, please be sure to follow us on Instagram at FDTL Podcast. That's where you'll find all things from darkness to life. And uh, if you're interested in dropping us a line, we'd love to hear your thoughts, suggestions, maybe your own story of uh, from darkness to life. Everybody's going through something out there. So if you if you have a story, if you're a listener and you have a story that you feel would be of value to somebody out there, I can almost guarantee it would be. Yeah, just shoot us an email at info at ourcollectivejourney.ca and uh, somebody will get back to you. And with that, I think it's time to kick this episode off. So uh, join me in welcoming our next guest to FDTL, Kelly Cummins, the clinical director from ARC in Calgary. Welcome, Kelly. Thanks. Yeah. Good to be here. Awesome. Yeah, it's nice of you to take time out of your busy schedule to join us because I know as well as you know, in the world of addiction recovery, um, there's really no slow moments. There's, there's a, a huge demand for it. Right. And I can just imagine how busy you folks are up there at ARC. So thank you once again for taking some time out of your schedule to join us. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we had for any listeners that are, you know, regulars of the show, we had a couple guests on a few months back, um, a parent, and a participant in the program at ARC and their episode was, you know, greatly appreciated them coming on and sharing their perspective of what it was like, what it is like to, you know, go through the ARC program and be part of it. And uh, we thought it would be very valuable to have somebody from the other side of the uh, field come and share with us about ARC and what that looks like and, and uh, from the clinical side, right. And, and more of the, more of the program stuff, more of what, what is involved on a day-to-day basis and, and, you know, kind of like the magic sauce, right? What makes ARC ARC? So yeah. Um, Kelly, you've been there for quite a while now, I hear. Yeah, I've been at ARC since 2014. Um, so yeah, ARC, ARC is a long-term treatment center for youth and their families struggling with drug and alcohol addiction. I think the main thing that separates ARC from other centers is the long-term aspect of it. So generally treatment is anywhere from eight to 12 months. Mm -hmm. I would say that usually it's in that nine or 10 month um, mark, but uh, definitely the longevity. And um, another thing that separates it too, is the the recovery home aspect, which is why it's a semi-residential Um which I can get into a little bit later, but though I think those two things are um, are largely why it's it's set apart from a lot of other treatment centers. Yeah, that's great, and I, I would love to get into some of those aspects as we go along. I'm sure we will throughout the hour. But uh, one of the things that you said there that really jumps out, of, you know, at me and re- and aligns with what I believe through my experience and you know watching other people go through this same journey that. Uh, that longevity piece, I think, um, the longer you can afford to go to treatment, the longer that, you know, you can stay in a facility like that and work on the tools. And, you know, for me, I just believe that the, the days of the 30 day treatment, I mean, if that's what you can go to and that's all your lifestyle and all you can accommodate, you know, it's better than nothing. But I I feel like the 30 day treatment, the fog is just starting to lift at that 
two, maybe three week mark. And that sure doesn't leave a lot of, a lot of quality time to work on new tools and work on any behavioral stuff. And yeah, so that I love hearing facilities when they're working on a longer model. Well, the other thing too is ARC, you know, it's tw ages 12 to 21 mostly. And so we really deal with use. Mm -hmm. um, and there's, there's real, I mean, there's a few, if you want to call them treatments that are, you know, five, 10, 15 days long that are involuntary. Right. Uh, but a lot of the treatment centers available to youth have to be voluntary. And right. so it's difficult because, I mean, imagine a 15, 16 year old who is in high school, things are going a little bit too far. Mm -hmm. They're kind of going into that drug addiction, alcohol addiction area, try to get them to go voluntarily to some sort of treatment. I mean, that's very difficult. I know that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I wouldn't have wanted to be, <laughs> be voluntarily. Yeah. I mean, the party is just getting started for a lot of these kids, you for know, sure. even if things have really gotten bad already as in, Oh, they're dropped out of school or they have suicidal ideation, self-harm behaviors, you know, they kind of, um, they don't see it as bad as maybe it really is sometimes. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I, as a, as a, you know, middle-aged man, I can a hundred percent resonate with that. When I was 40 and went to treatment, I sure didn't want to go. Right. And it wasn't because of the party was just getting started or, it's already been going on for a long time, but yeah, you know, that's one of the things we always talk about when I'm working with people and I'm sure you've found this yourself that a lot of people don't want to go to treatment. And, and one of the things I suggest is, you know, when you talk to anybody in treatment, especially early treatment, um, there's hardly anybody that wants to be there, right? Nobody wakes up one day and says, I can't wait to go to a treatment center, right? It's it's a, it's a, it's a very common thread in most treatment facilities that at the start, nobody wants to be there. The odd person does, but you know, as the, as the magic starts to unfold and you start getting into the work that starts to get reframed for a lot of people and the benefits start to jump out. And yeah, that's a, it's a really, it's a really uh, complex issue when you talk about youth for sure. Cause that age group is. Well, most, most teens don't want to do things voluntarily. It doesn't matter what it revolves around. Right. <laughs> How do individuals get referred or what's the intake process? How, what does that look like for, you know, if you have a, any youth that is between that 12 and 20, 24, and they want to, you know, come to ARC or they, are they interested in hearing about it? What does that look like? Yeah. So over over 18 so it's 21 22 is usually the cutoff okay um over 18 it's fairly uh simple because the client who wants to come in will call and get get the details and and sometimes they won't follow through because arc has a lot of rules mm -hmm. um there's no smoking there's no phones there's a lot of restrictive procedures just so that we can kind of get down to exactly who they are and what's going on with them. Very little distraction. Yeah. Um, but for, for the, yeah, 12 to 17, it's usually the parents who will call ARC, the re main reception most of the time, and they get referred to the intake uh, pre-assessment coordinator. And, she will go through with the family what's been going on. Um, and after that, there's a lot of data that she compiles together. And then the fam I will talk to the family or the other clinical director at ARC, Donnie, will talk to the family. And it's really, there's a lot of things that we talk about. Mainly it's, the treatment is involuntary. Mm -hmm. And so it's not just willy-nilly let's bring your kid in right there's okay so have there been treat previous treatment failures right maybe they've been to pchad maybe they've been to counseling for three years five years maybe they've been to the hospital because um you know suicidal ideation or attempts at suicide all these things it, it's helpful to have 
collateral Mm -hmm. in terms of, okay, where has this person been? Because we don't want to uh, intake clients who don't need such intense treatment. So making sure that this, this person really is um, a proper fit. And then it's also talking about what the, with the family, what the, requirements for our it are which is it's a family treatment it's not just for the person with addiction but it's family treatment so there's tuesday nights and friday nights where the families will come in we'll have uh, group sessions and they'll get to see and talk to their their child um siblings are also involved so anyone who yeah who lives in the home is expected to to be at ARC. And the reason for that is it's kind of like everybody gets sick to a certain mm-hmm. degree when there's addiction involved, right? So maybe the parents, uh, you know, they, they talk about engaging in behaviors that they normally wouldn't engage in, which is following their kids around, tracking their kids. Maybe they even buy their kids drugs. Right. Uh, to, to that's what they feel is going to help help their kid at that point, which I do not blame blame them for. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they also have their own kind of insanity or craziness that that comes along mm-hmm. with dealing with someone who um, has addiction issues. So it's it's we feel it's important to treat everybody. Uh, although the main client is obviously the person with addiction issues. Um, yeah, it's just, it's important to, even st- even with the client, placing them back in an environment where there's no healing, mm-hmm. there's no, they don't speak the same language recovery-wise, uh, they don't really, maybe they, like, imagine just taking a 16 or 15-year-old, treating them, okay, but then putting them back in that environment, I just, yeah, we think that that's not the best way to do it we yeah. think that treating everyone and uh yeah so that they can speak the same language they can get to know each other well you know because it's awkward too when a kid first becomes sober they don't you know they don't really know who they are and um the parents don't always know how to interact with them so yeah absolutely and and what an invaluable piece i think you guys are tapping into there that inclusion of the entire family unit because you know what we do here at our collective journey and, and some of the services we provide, um, a lot of feedback we get is from the family circle and from the individuals who are supporting, you know, the person impacted personally by addiction. And one thing that always jumps out at us is, is like you said, right? How addiction impacts or it's a family disease. It's not just the individual themselves, right? And everybody is, operating in some sort of dysfunction at certain times, right? Whether or not they know it, but uh, speaking the same language is a huge piece to that. I think when the individual comes back from treatment, if, if the family unit is still living the way they used to live or behaving or, or running on those same routines and norms and, and expect somebody who's early in recovery to come back and do well in that same old environment, it's amplifying the difficulty exponentially it's crazy how hard that is for somebody and and the fall off rate is is through the roof right i know personally and through experience that you know it's a lot easier to to get into and stay in recovery if you if your entire unit is recovery informed and and working in the same direction yeah absolutely wow That's a huge piece. No, I'm so glad to hear you guys are doing that. And, and, and multiple times, I know lots of treatment centers are trying to incorporate, um, or treatment programming, they're trying to incorporate the family unit, but you know, due to logistics and various things, maybe it's one Saturday during the stay or something like that. Right. But having a few meetings a week and doing what you guys are doing there is, is very beneficial to everybody involved. I, th- in my opinion. Yeah, we found, I mean, Throughout, there's a study done, and it, it found that a year post-treatment, 73% of people were still sober. So, I, I think you know that in addiction, that is a wildly high number. Yeah. <laughs> because you're right, like, you know, staying sober for, for people is difficult. 
enough, but for kids who are, you know, 16, 17, 18 years old, going maybe back into high school, I think it's a pretty, uh, pretty impressive number, not to toot our own horn. Cause we do use obviously the 12 step, mm-hmm. um, program as a, as a base. And that's what we teach at ARC. Uh, so that's a huge part of it as well. Yeah. That those are very impressive statistics and, and, you know, to have the data to back that up is, is the next biggest piece, I think, cause you know, I've personally contacted so many treatment centers or you do some research and they're running exponentially high percentage numbers of success. Right. And, and my first question always is what are they basing success on? What does that look like? Is that completion of the program or is that post program and how long? And so, yeah, to have a survey to back that up is, is worth its weight in gold. I think that's amazing. Mm-hmm. And you said that you guys operate uh, the 12 step program, or that's one of the basis of the treatment facility there. Yeah. So there's four levels in treatment mm-hmm. um, and each level. So level one is steps one to three, level two, four to seven, three, level three, eight to 10 and the last level 10, 11, 12. Nice. So when, yeah, when clients come in, they have, yeah, no phone, no nicotine, no energy drinks, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. We call it newcomer status, which kind of aligns with uh 12 step programs as well. And then right. as they move, <clears throat> excuse me, as they move uh, onto level two, then they're called an old summer and, and they have uh, more privileges and they actually go home on, on level two back to their own homes. Wow. Mm-hmm. And what does that look like when, so level one, they're obviously not in their own home. So they're staying in your facility for level one or what does that look like? Yeah. So level one, we have something at our called recovery homes. So People and families who are on level two, three, and four take clients home on level one. Gotcha. So the clients never sleep at ARC. Uh, They never sleep at the facility unless there's extenuating circumstances, but uh, they go to pretty well other people's homes who are further along in treatment. Unsuper like obviously they're supervised by their old comers and and the parents in the home, Mm -hmm. but you would, I'm always surprised of how smooth the recovery homes go. And I think that's because it's you're going into someone else's home. So some other clients home that you see every day and it's really just another mom and dad, you know, it's kind of like a safe haven from ARC. You're at ARC all day, Monday to Saturday, um, 8am to sometimes 7pm doing groups, you know, sometimes doing art, working out things like that. And then they go home to a real home. It's not an institution. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just, yeah, a place where you can have snacks and have dinner and hang out with the other clients, but also just um, hang out with with an actual, like a family. And yeah, we limit TV time as well. So we want them to actually play board games and play cards and not, so yeah, not a lot of... Uh, high risk or escalated situations happen in the recovery home, which I, it happens more at the center, uh, which I think just speaks to how nice it is for clients to go home to a home and not have to feel institutionalized in that way. Yeah. That's, that's amazing. I think that's one of the other pieces that really sets ARC apart from other facilities, right? Is that, that whole piece you just spoke about them actually going home to somebody else's home. (laughs) <laughs> and and yeah, yeah right it, it oh that's amazing because i think that you know i know personally from being in treatment years ago that you know you are in that safety bubble of a treatment facility for however long you're there for me it was seven eight weeks and and then it's like back out into the real world so if you can integrate that into the entire process where you get to dabble in the real world and in a safe environment but also not that institutional environment that's that's amazing yeah, I think it's it's really awesome. And even on weekends, they'll go out to, you know, depending on the weather, of course, Calgary, but they'll go out to the mountains and watch movies, but they'll they'll actually go out and do things and 
you know, learn how to talk to adults and, mm. you know, maybe at first strangers and yeah, there's a lot of skills I think that are learned. That's amazing. Through that and, and yeah. yeah. And, and getting to practice them throughout the course of the stay at arc, I think is, is invaluable. Practice them in the real world. Yeah. Yeah. That's huge. And I know, you know, I talk with a lot of people that, you know, they're always fearful of the, of the pink cloud, they call it, or the, you know, the early recovery, right? Where you get back out in the real world and then suddenly you're faced with real world conflict and real world um, consequences and all these different things, right? That you haven't had to deal with while you're in treatment. So I think to be able to work through some of that while you're there in that safe place and then have the opportunity to come back to ARC during the day and work through some of those things that you've experienced the evening before. Man, what a cool idea that is. Yeah, and we do that too. Level three and four is when they go back to school uh, or get jobs. Mm -hmm. And so they have some of that too. They're able to go out into the world and sometimes they'll see people that they know or see people that they don't want to see. And so, yeah, it's, it's the way it's structured, I think is, uh, is good for slowly implementing, getting back into what the real world is going to be like. Okay. Yeah. That's, that's really cool. Cause that's level three and four you said, right? Yeah. That, yeah. That's when they go back to school or, or get jobs depending on, yeah, just where they're at. For sure. And, and that coincides well with, um, the step work that they've already been through by the time you get to level three and four, you've been through the first, I think what you were saying earlier is maybe the first six steps, but before you get to level three. Yeah. Yeah. The first, yeah. Level three is step eight. So oh, first wow. seven steps, which, yeah, as you know, that a four and five is super important. Mm -hmm. Um, and yeah, it, I think it sets them up well, not to not have, pain or experience discomfort but just to be able to have those tools to um yeah to go out into the real world and then yeah sometimes they'll come back and say yeah i saw this person or can i talk to you They're, they already have those skills of i need to reach out or i need to work this step or that step yeah oh and that's that's kind of where i was headed with that is how valuable that is because i know a lot of treatment facilities that are you know, running the 12 step or based on the 12 step processes, steps one to three, they'll take you through be, due to the logistics or the time frame or whatever that looks like. But when you're left to your own devices, I know personally from my experience and the hundreds of people I've talked to, you get released or graduate from treatment and you finish step three and you're working on step four. And now you're back out in the real world expected to find, you know, a sponsor or a trusted person to take you through steps four and five. Well, there's a lot of people that don't follow through with that because those are can be two of the harder steps to work through. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think that some clients take six weeks on step four mm -hmm. because they... That's the thing is we are such a structure around clients so maybe they're avoiding it maybe they they don't have the skills to actually just sit sit down and and write it some people take maybe two or three weeks that's the minimum on each step is two weeks yeah but but yeah there's a lot and especially asking the youth to do that and there needs to be a proper structure around them to help them because they're not even fully developed yet for right? sure um within their in their brains so yeah we definitely support them and you're right that steps four and five usually are quite intimidating for them um and then after step five they they kind of understand why <laughs> why that's a thing is yeah. they feel a lot of them say for the first time they feel relieved relief kind of open mm -hmm. and like things are things are okay so you're right that those steps are, yeah, they're pretty intimidating at first. Wow. Yeah. That's, that's an understatement. I think how intimidating <laughs> they can be right for anybody who's going down that path. But yeah, I can't imagine what it would be like to do those, you know, the weight of those steps. And, uh, I also think, you know, like having that time to process the stuff that comes up in those two steps. And for anybody who's listening, you know, this isn't a promotion of the 12 steps, you know, that goes against 
12 step traditions. This is, this is something that's very valuable and it's part of uh, arcs recovery process. So, um, but yeah, the cognitive piece you were just talking about, right. With, with that age group and even just understanding, you know, the difference between what's mine and what's somebody else's and carrying the guilt that comes with some of the, our experiences is difficult to navigate and figure out, you know, which pieces are mine, which pieces do I have to work on? And, and a lot of individuals are carrying so much guilt and shame based on their experience. But what step four and five can really help individuals with is, is decipher which pieces are theirs. And it's not all theirs to continue carrying. And, and I, I completely relate to that piece around, you know, feeling like a weight's been lifted once you get through step five. And, and that's the piece that was really enlightening was, man, I don't have to carry everything anymore. Right. I I just have to own a few pieces of this that I was directly a part of, but I don't, you know, stuff that happened isn't all because of stuff that I did. It's, it's Hmm. a contribution of everyone else that was involved. Right. And, and I can't Mm -hmm. imagine what that's like to, to wade through as a, as a middle teen or, whatever your age bracket is. Yeah. Well, the other thing too, that I think about is a lot of the kids at ARC have, you know, personality issues, mental health issues, very. Me too. Yeah. (laughs) 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 Right. So, <laughs> right. So just to have like you understand it's it's not just yeah, write write down everything that's happened in in your life. Like that piece you were talking about, what's mine? A lot of the kids, when you get down to it, they feel like it's all their fault. Mm-hmm. Um so it's it's very important to yeah, to break that apart with them just on on the step fives. It's done by a clinical counselor with mm-hmm. a peer counselor as well which is important um and yeah we just talk about their their whole life and go through every everything that happened and just give them the opportunity to to have everything out on the on the table wow yeah i can definitely see how beneficial that would be in your programming and and it also you know alludes to how um you guys are running you know that that percentage number that success rate one year post treatment right it's when you're digging into that quality and that depth of work when you're in in a facility where you have trained professionals and peer counselors as well right people that get it and i just really think that that's stuff that sometimes that gets missed or it gets taken for granted in in some facilities but uh, you mentioned peer counselors can you shed some light on Mm -hmm. that what does that look like for for individuals that are yeah, the peer counselors are amazing. Um, peer counselors. So mostly everybody who ha- who works at ARC has been through ARC themselves. So the the peer counselors, whether they they graduated a year ago, two, three years ago, we have a lot of peer counselors right now who are in that 18, 19, 20 range. And yeah, they're just awesome. They read the literature. 12 and 12 and the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous with the kids. They do a lot of supervision of the kids when they're, you know, working out or um, they do a lot of, it's not group therapy because obviously peer counselors aren't doing therapy with kids, but there are group sessions where the kids will tell drug and alcohol incidents and the peer counselors will, just speak with them about it in a group setting. So other people, other clients can relate um, and the peer counselors can relate and say, you know, yeah, I relate to doing this or I relate to feeling this way. And it's, yeah, it's just so crucial because the peer counselors are the ones that really help to get the clients to trust Mm -hmm. uh, the process because how, you know, say if, if I'm a client 15, 16, and there's someone who is two years sober working ARC 18 years old, that's such an incredible bond, right? Um, so yeah, I think the peer counselors are super crucial and they do a lot of good work at ARC for sure. Wow. Yeah. And that, that rapport building, like you were just talking about, right? That's that lived experience piece and somebody from your peer population, right? I think that 
it's very hard to replicate that in the professional world, how, how quickly rapport can be built and trust and, and that safe space. Um, yeah. Unless you are somebody who checks those boxes. I've been there, I've done that. And this is what worked for me. That relate relatability piece, I think is, and that's something we do here at OCJ is, you know, with the recovery coach program we offer is, is most of our coaches have that lived experience piece and, you know, our stories differ, but the feelings that come with addiction are, you know, there's common threads in everything. So I think to be yeah. able to sit down, like you said, right. And share some of those pieces around, you know, it's not about glorifying drug use or anything, but it's about being relatable and Hey, I get it. I, it's amazing how rapport is built through that connection. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's the peer counselor's ability to see how the clients are feeling and be able to, cause it's not like the kids, it's actually most often that the kids don't obviously aren't really open and willing to share all the time. For sure. Uh, but really what gets them to say, to open up is okay, well this person, this peer counselor knows how I feel and I haven't even told them how I feel. <laughs> so it like, they must understand to some degree yeah. what what it's like to be me um so yeah i just can't be understated how how important the peer counselors are for sure yeah well that that piece man that really hits home where you you shared about how you know some of the kiddos haven't even shared their story yet but the peer counselors are already getting it right they they understand and i i can remember going back to treatment when I first was introduced to one of the other 12 step programs, Narcotics Anonymous, and I, and I started digging into the, the basic text. And I remember reading the first chapter and a half and then closing the book and looking at the cover again and thinking, how the heck did these people write this book for me? Like this was written for me. It's exactly how I feel today. Yeah. And, and that piece around that, you know, it's written by people who have been through addiction for people who are going through addiction. I'm like, I completely get this. This is the power of lived experience. It's amazing. Yeah. And it, it kind of mirrors a, a, what happens in Alcoholics Anonymous too, right? Um, with helping another person and sponsorship. And so obviously, yeah, we call it peer peer counselors but mm -hmm. that's really a lot of the program at arc was based off of the the 12 the 12 step program and uh and how successful that is when you when you have someone saying hey this this is how i got through it yeah and if you do what i do then you'll probably get the result that i that i got wow yeah that's that's really cool and and i applaud the use of the peer counseling at ARC, because that's, yeah, that piece there, right? I, and it's not to say that the professional and the clinical individuals like yourself, Kelly, aren't able to do a lot of that work, right? But it sure is complementary, I think, when you can integrate the peer aspect with the professional and the medical aspect. And, you know, for us at OCJ, it's, it's you know, once we build that rapport and then somebody gets to a point where they're ready to go see a counselor or somebody from the medical world or the professional world, it sure makes it a lot easier to build that relationship when they say, Oh man, Ryan's a pretty good guy. And he says, Bob over at the provincial building is, is one of his buddies and he's an addictions counselor. Well, I trust Ryan. So maybe Bob's going to be a good guy. Let's go check him out. Right. And it's just that, hmm. that door to door service, the warm handoff. And it's, yeah, it's invaluable. I believe. For sure. And that's, yeah, it's, like we said, there's obviously mental health issues, all, all that stuff, and that we do have different, you know, doctors and psychiatrists that that attend to those mm -hmm. um, aspects too. Because we understand at Arc, it's we try to take like a holistic kind of biopsychosocial looking at the client. Okay, let's address the mental health, the addiction. Um, they're going to get a new set of peers in this process, like the social, which they're all kind of going toward the same goal of recovery and sobriety. And then let's address the family too. And even physically, like we have, um, we have two gyms at ARC and a skating rink that I hear is operational <laughs> as of today, I believe. And so, For yeah, there's a lot of, 
we put in a lot of effort to try to give a like a wholesome treatment experience. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's actually you took the the next words out of my mouth was you know with, along with the twelve step program that you guys operate there. I was going to get into that biopsychosocial model as well and what that might look like there, but I think you just laid out a lot of what it is and. It's pretty cool that you guys have a skating rink this week, (laughs) this week, stay tuned for next week. Who knows what the weather's going to do? Totally. Yeah. It's the poor men. I think that we have someone, the buildings operator, and then some of the dads in treatment help out. And it's like, oh, you get it ready to go. And then it's plus 10. So so bizarre, right? It's like quick. It's ready. Get your skates on. Cause by dinner time tonight, we're not sure what's going to (laughs) happen. Yeah, exactly. I swear this must be the most difficult province in all of Canada to have an outdoor ice skating rink. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. You never know. Yeah, for sure. So how many, I'm really fascinated around the part around, you know, psychologists and psychiatrists on staff there as well and what that looks like. So if I'm an individual, do I have access to those professionals from, you know, in level one or do I have to be at a certain level to access them or what does that look like? Yeah. So, um, the, we have a psychiatrist, Dr. Hogg, who sees, um, the clients Mm -hmm. on a need needed, who needs it basis. So usually it's about six to eight weeks in treatment. The clients see her. Um, and we have about four, four nurses that work at ARC and they handle the, the medical side of things, coordinate doctor's appointments for clients on level one, um, that kind of stuff. And then we also have, um, we also have, a uh, people that we consult with, right? So, we don't think sometimes we need help with a case, you know, case conceptualization. Mm -hmm. And so we do consults with, um, with Dr. Wallace, who is just amazing in helping us understand if we're struggling, uh, or even just not if we're struggling, but if we want to know more about, okay, so we have this family and we have this client, this is what we're seeing. And, and, she helps us, yeah, just to understand and to better help. Um, yeah, and then we also have about 30 days into the program, we have a psychologist who does a substance use assessment on clients. And, um, and yeah, they, I, think, I think that about covers it. Fascinating. What does it look like in ARC, you know, at any given time? What's capacity? What's... How many individuals can ARC serve at one time? That's a good question. I think throughout the years, it has fluctuated. Mm -hmm. So right now, I think we have, right now, I think we have about 11 or 12, but in the past we have had 25 or 30. Yeah. So, so it really just depends on, yeah, I mean, obviously, there's a lot of moving parts, whether it's how many recovery homes do we have, uh, you know, every every kid needs a place to go, obviously, in, mm-hmm. in the evening. So, it just is, it depends if we have someone who, who wants to come in. Yeah. We usually try, try to make it work, whatever means necessary, you know, because we know that addiction is a very serious thing, so... Yeah, for sure it is. Um, yeah, and the reason I ask that is because your facility and your programming and stuff is a lot different than other agencies or other institutions that I've, you know, had the opportunity to chat with, right? It's not like you have 12 recovery beds and this is the program for four weeks and it's really structured, right? It's So I just wanted to clarify that and, and see what that looked like because it is fascinating, right? And with the with the utilization of those recovery homes outside of the facility yeah i could see why that's it's very dependent on how many of those you have and how many people you can serve correlate with that right mm-hmm. very cool now when you talk about arc and you know all these services you guys provide <laughs> which is is amazing what's 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 being offered there 
what does it look like if I, if I phone today and what does it look like to get in there, you know, financially, how, how does that structure mm. work? Is it covered by Alberta healthcare or is it a private facility or. So we do have funding from the government, mm-hmm. um, but largely our executive director, Dr. Vaz does a ton of fundraising to make it make the sliding scale that we have possible. So we never turn or turn families or clients away based on income. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is a sliding scale based on, based on your income. So some families, you know, it could be as little as $10 a day Yeah, and it, and it kind of goes up based on how, yeah, just based on how, what your income is. Um, and obviously like, we understand that things change. And so we really work with people to make it work because our, our primary purpose is to help kids achieve sobriety. So Mm -hmm. whatever it takes, as long as the the families and the clients are willing to work with us also, then that's kind of our, that's kind of our view on that. Mm -hmm. Well, that's so good to hear because you know, there's, there's definitely a lot of treatment facilities around the province and throughout Western Canada and well, everywhere for that matter. But a lot of them don't have that luxury of working on a sliding scale. And a lot of people, you know, don't have the option of going to certain facilities because of that, that barrier. Right. So that's really cool to hear that you guys have both funding and, and spend a lot of time fundraising. And that's something I can mm-hmm. relate to is that fundraising piece. It's, you know, and a lot of, uh, a lot of society these days, I find it's hard to fundraise, right? It's the times we live in where it's everything costs a fortune. It seems like these days, just the cost of living, right? So the fundraising is, is an extra um, difficult piece in this day and age, I find personally and professionally. And, and I imagine you guys run into a lot of similar issues around that aspect. Yeah, absolutely. I think our, we do have a gala that we do in May at the, it's usually held at the TELUS Convention Center. Oh, nice. And so that's that's a big funding fundraising event that we do. But yeah, a lot of it is is the individual work um that Dr. Vaz does. He's just he's the one who started ARC, you know, in, in ninety two thirty two years ago. So he has an incredible amount of passion and um yeah, he takes he takes the bulk of that work for sure. And then we, like I said, we also have the gala coming up in May, and then we have a golf tournament as well nice. that people can can come to in August. And we have little things throughout the year, but you're right in in the times we're in. I think a lot. I mean, a lot of people are struggling, not just people with with addiction issues. You mm-hmm. know, for sure. Well, yeah. while that's you know fresh in my mind, the topic of your gala and your golf tournament can. Are those things available through your website? If somebody, if a listener out there wants to attend or wants to, you know, be part of the golf tournament that you guys put on later in the year, is that something that's offered through your website or how do they find that? Yeah, they can, they can definitely go to the website. Um, Also too, you can call in um, to the main reception and ask for either Marissa or Anna and they can, they can direct you because they're the, they, they coordinate those events. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, we'll do, we also have an Instagram and a Facebook page. And so we do a lot of posts on there nice. and no doubt we'll be, we'll be doing a lot of posts in the weeks leading up to the gala. So I'm sure if you just click on one of those posts, you know, click here for tickets, Yeah, for sure. <laughs> you can do that for sure. Yeah. Very cool. Well, and like always, that's something we'll put in the footnotes of this episode as well. Your, your Instagram, your social media handles and, uh, and your website as well. Cause I just know, you know, based on the feedback we get from our population and the people that we serve, you know, until you're in the middle of it, it's really, it's not something you prepare for, right? Like where are these mm-hmm. services? And, and then suddenly you find yourself in need of the services or heaven forbid a crisis situation. And, uh, now try to navigate the system mm. you know when when your adrenaline's pumping and it's the fight or flight moments so yeah that's yeah, just, absolutely and that's so cool i love what you guys are doing um i love the entire family inclusion that's 
that I think is, is another piece that really sets you guys apart is, well, there's many moving parts, like you said, right. But a lot of things you guys are doing are some of the things are being done at other facilities, but it's very rare that you find all those pieces under one roof and that whole holistic approach. And, um, yeah, I think what you guys are doing at ARC is, is different and it's obviously it's, it's helping a lot of people. Thanks so much. Yeah, we we really if if there's anything people take away from from just talking about ARC is that we really we know that our primary purpose is to help is to help the kids. Mm-hmm. That really is all it comes down to. And so I know that a lot of a lot of parents and people are overwhelmed with our requirements in terms of host homes and Tuesdays and Fridays. Um, but yeah, based on, like you said, kind of based on the success rate, like we really feel that that this, these are the things that work. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's why we do it right. Is not to make people jump through hoops, but just, this is what we feel gives, gives kids the best chance of, obtaining recovery, you know, and sobriety. For sure. Yeah. And, and I love that you, you've mentioned it a few times now about the, your primary purpose at ARC is, is just to help, you know, help the kiddos, help them find recovery and, and whatever that looks like. Right. And I always find, you know, I, I say this day in and day out that if anybody says there's one way that works for recovery, I, I'm usually pretty leery of those individuals, right? There's multiple things that goes into somebody getting into recovery and staying there. And, and, uh, I really think that you guys are covering a lot of those pieces. Um, it's not just 12 step work and you'll be in recovery. It's not just medication and you'll be in recovery, right? It's, it's a combination of all these things and it's different for everybody. And like we were just talking about, right? Until you're in the middle of it, or you're presented with this issue, it's really hard to prepare for it. Nobody's preparing for it. So to have a facility that's taken into account all those aspects of the biopsychosocial, the spiritual model and combined mm-hmm. it under one roof, <clears throat> I think that takes away a lot of the guesswork for people. Yeah, I hope so. I hope, I think you're right that when people contact ARC, it's usually, they're usually at, the end of the spectrum right Mm. in in terms of how bad is this they're usually at the very end so i think yeah it is like i said it's easy to get overwhelmed oh my gosh all these things i have to do but yeah i hope that shines through is is there's a lot there's a lot of yeah psychiatrists the nurses the you know, maybe there is medication and the clinical and all the group work. I hope that, that, that does shine through that those things are, yeah. Amazing to have under one roof, I guess, as you said. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. for sure. And and as you list those pieces off, right. I, I put myself in the position of somebody who's looking to get into recovery or, or supporting somebody right in those early days and, and to try to find those resources on your own one by one, right. There's if you can find a psychiatrist that's taken new patients, mm. if, if you can get into the medical system, you know, it's usually X amount of days or weeks between appointments and, and then to find a group, you know, a mutual support group that, you know, it, it can be so overwhelming and frustrating. And then a lot of people probably back off and fall through the cracks at that point. And to be able to mm-hmm. find all of those resources under one roof, I think that eliminates a lot of the wait times for people in the various aspects of society. So, Yeah. I think what you guys, yeah, it's amazing. And, and for any, uh, it's so true what you said about, you know, individuals are usually at the end of the spectrum, the, the long end of the spectrum, right? It's recovery and, and, uh, treatment isn't usually the first stop on the block for people. It's usually I'll try every other softer way (laughs) and nine times out of 10, (laughs) they don't work, right? It might take a week. It might take a month. It might take a year, two years, whatever, right. To try all the different ways. But a lot of people end up, I need treatment. And, and this goes back to the start of our conversation, right? When you ask somebody in their first couple of days of treatment, if they want to be there, most people don't, but they've tried a lot of other ways that aren't working. And this becomes the resort, the last resort, but it 
for me, it turned out to be the best resort. It was the life-changing mm-hmm. piece that I had avoided for so long. Well, I think that's the nature of addiction too, is there's a certain amount of, like, I think it's a, it says somewhere in the, in the literature that you can by the time, like maybe you can stop it, but try to find someone who wants to stop when it's not too late. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So the nature of addiction, I think there's a lot of, there's obviously delusion involved. It's not that bad or mm-hmm. no one cares anyway, you know? So you're right. If, if people have tried, I know a lot of parents have tried different aspects, whether it's confinement at, you know, Woods Homes or Pecha. There's a lot of things that they've tried. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, by the time they get to ARC, it's, they are in that kind of fight or flight mode. Like, can you help my kid kind yeah. of thing? Right. So. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, I heard it described as it's one of the only diseases that you have that tells you you don't have it. <laughs> Right. <laughs> and and that takes you and it took me to the to the depths that I never thought I would ever get to. Based on yeah. that logic, like you said, right? Nah, it's not quite that bad yet, or at least it's not as bad as that person, or I'm not hurting anyone else, and all this delusional thinking and self centered behavior and yeah, it goes hand in hand. And when you're sitting across from one of those pure counselors like you were sharing earlier, you know, they get it. They've been there and they've they've rode the garbage truck to the dump themselves usually (laughs) (laughs) it's yeah it's so true and just normalizing to like when we talk about selfish self-centered no one wants to admit that right (laughs) like no one with addiction wants to admit the things that they've done but the peer counselors are kind of like yeah like i did that Mm -hmm. no no big deal (laughs) it's kind of just like normalizing like it's okay you're not bad for like sure. you're just you have you just have this disease and we can move on from it you know yeah that that whole piece around i'm not bad right it really ties into that self-worth piece and for me when i understood that i'm not a bad person i'm just a sick person who's trying to get better you know that really helped me reframe my thinking and and build a little bit of self-worth and and i know how valuable that that is amongst that population we're talking about today, right? It's so easy to have low self-worth as a teenager in this day and age and to sit around a group of peers that have been to similar places and done similar things is it's stigma erasing, right? It's that's what keeps so many of us out there stuck for so long is man, I'm not sharing any of this. Like I'm the only one who's done this and I'm a horrible person. And, but when you sit around the table with, x amount of people and they're like "Mm, yep i get it i've been there i did that and i Mm -hmm. did this and yeah normalizes it i I think that's invaluable well the other thing too that brings to mind is i know in the field a lot i've heard a lot that don't call them addicts Mm -hmm. or alcoholics like it's it's degrading and i find that the feedback i get is that it actually helps to clients are like oh this is what it is like there's nothing wrong with me i'm just an addict like there's not that for them it's just helpful to name it and Mm -hmm. it's not something that they feel degraded by yeah it's just it describes what's been going on for them for a long time right well i'm glad you brought that up because yeah that's something we face here all the time is you know language matters and don't label people and all these things. Right. And, and for me, it's like, everybody's different. Everyone has a different perspective on this conversation, I think. And, and when I put myself in that lived experience piece and I, and I have been to hundreds and hundreds of mutual support groups, and I see how beneficial that is for those individuals to say that for themselves. Right. And, and it helps clean things up for them right? It's, it's helps distinguish that maybe I'm not a bad person. This is what I struggle with. And this is what I am today. It doesn't mean I'm a bad person. It it just gives me something to grasp onto and, and there's a fix for it, right? Or maybe not a fix, but there's a better way of living. And yeah, I use the term Mm -hmm. addict all the time because that's, that's what I am and that's who I am. Right. But it's not who I am for life. I've you do the work, you figure it out, you get on the other side of it, you get in recovery. And, and now it's almost like having a, a bit of a superpower. 
<laughs> For I, sure. Yeah, that's cool. I'm glad you brought that up because we have a lot of listeners that uh, listen and they struggle with that, right? I, I know lots of people that won't go to a 12-step meeting because they don't want to refer to themselves as an alcoholic or an addict, right? But I know, I, I don't even know what number I would put on it, but for every one person I meet like that, there's 10 more that feel comfortable going to that environment and, and speaking that language and what works for some might not work for everyone. So it's finding your place and finding uh, what works for you, I think. And, and that's great. Yeah, for sure. And we don't, we don't, at ARC, we don't tell kids like you're an addict, you're mm-hmm. an alcoholic. Like we do, we do want them to come to that by themselves. I think we just show people, like we show the clients that it's not, it's okay. Like if you, it, it's okay that you're an addict or an alcoholic, like whatever you, mm-hmm. you define it as there's no, you don't have to be ashamed of it. And you're right. Like it, it gives a lot of like the maturity of some of the graduates when they're 18, 19, 20, it's totally a leg up. Like they're like emotional maturity. They can speak to people. They they're just amazing, and so you're right. It is, it is like having a superpower for sure. Very cool. Well, Kelly, I cannot thank you enough for coming on today and, and sharing more about Arc. Right? We like I said, we had Desiree and and Sid on a previous episode, and they shared their perspective and how healing that journey was through Arc for both of them. And uh, I love having the other conversation about what the clinical side looks like and what the the nuts and bolts of arc what that looks like on a day-to-day perspective so yeah that's that's fascinating thanks so much yeah we really appreciate you having us on and just help spreading the word about arc and that we do exist and if you need help just to reach out if you could leave our listeners kelly with one little piece of advice or suggestion around anything to do with recovery or arc or what's one thing you would share with the listeners? I think about arc that recovery is possible for, I mean, to parents or individuals recovery is possible even if you feel like it's not, you know, there's millions of people in 12-step programs, but specifically are over 650 people, clients and their families have graduated. And although not all of them are sober, all of them have been introduced to a way of life that they can be sober. And so, yeah, just if you're feeling lost and hopeless, um, ARC wants to help you and your family. Mm-hmm. Amazing. When I think that lost and hopeless feeling is another one of those common threads that people who are struggling with addiction and not just mm-hmm. the individual, but the families as well, right? There's a lot of hopelessness and, and that perspective of being lost is very common in that population. So I think to have somebody advocating yeah. for hope and planting those seeds of recovery, like you guys are doing there and, I just, yeah, unfortunately I don't see an end to addiction. So I think the more we can throw at it recovery focused and the more resources we throw at it and shine a light on, you know, it's, it's helping somebody out there navigate this crazy journey. Yeah. Addiction is crazy. It's (laughs) insane. So you're right. The more, the more hope we can, we can talk about hope and recovery. It's Cause it really is there. It really does happen for people being able to be sober and happy at the same time. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's, it's definitely possible. Wonderful. Well, thanks again, Kelly. And uh, we will put all of ARC's contact info in our footnotes for this episode. And uh, with that, I think we'll wrap up this episode. I just want to wish you a uh, good luck with your hockey rink. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, we'll let you know. Hopefully the the kids will be skating in no time. Wonderful. Well, thanks again, Kelly. And uh, don't forget to like, share, follow at FDTL Podcast on Instagram. And uh, if you have any comments, concerns, any questions, or you, you have a story of 
your own journey from darkness to life that you want to uh, potentially come on the show and share some of that, reach out to us at info at ourcollectivejourney.ca. And with that, we'll, uh, we'll see you all next week. From Darkness to Life is an Our Collective Journey podcast. These are the real stories of people who've triumphed over the many challenges of life's journey. If you or a loved one needs support, please reach out to ourcollectivejourney.ca. Our commitment is to empower you to build resilience as you journey towards recovery. Consider showing your support by donating online at ourcollectivejourney.ca. Hosted by members of Our Collective Journey. Produced by Rob Pate. Engineered, edited, and directed by Dave Cruikshank. From Darkness to Life is a plugged-in media network exclusive. 